did research because I was curious. I was fascinated by questions that arose through clinical practice and that really was a stimulus for some of the research that I've engaged in over the years. Welcome to this 2019 Kessler Foundation Baird Visiting Educational Professorship Lecture. In 1957, William Torrey Beard Jr. started a family tradition of giving to Kessler that has spanned across three generations. A veteran of the First World War, Mr. W. Beard Jr. saw the power of rehabilitation after an injury and felt compelled to help. Joining Kessler's Board of Trustees, he began a lifelong commitment of support to medical rehabilitation, a value that he has passed down to his nephew, Collier W. Beard Jr. Mr. Collier Baird Jr. furthered that commitment by establishing a trust to benefit Kessler Foundation and expand its research. The Baird Lecture continues to educate the next generation of researchers on innovative medical rehabilitation research and treatment options. This year's Baird Lecture is Dr. Gordon Shalhoun, Professor Emeritus in the Department of Neurology at the University of Utah School of Medicine where he served as a senior neuropsychologist in the Center for Alzheimer's Care, Imaging, and Research. Be sure and read the rest of Dr. Shalhoun's bio in the program notes. Dr. Shalhoun presented, Reducing Diagnostic Uncertainty, What Researchers Can Do for Evidence-Based Practitioners, on Thursday, November 21, 2019, at the Kessler Foundation Conference Center, 120 Eagle Rock Ave, East Hanover, New Jersey. This podcast was edited and produced by Joan Banks-Smith, creative producer for Kessler Foundation. Let's listen in. Through the being on the Scientific Advisory Committee, I've really had the privilege to come to know what a great organization you have here. It really is remarkable um, in many respects to see as many dedicated research scientists coming together to tackle important questions about healthcare is pretty amazing. In my history, and I've been around in a few places, um, it really stands out as, as truly unique. Um, I've been a clinician and researcher my entire professional history, so I'm close to 45 years, and primarily a clinician. Uh, I saw lots of patients, that's what paid my salary. Uh, and I did research because I was curious. I was uh, fascinated by questions that arose through clinical practice, and that really was a stimulus for some of the research that I've engaged in um, over the years. But I really wasn't quite sure how to characterize that until one time I was visiting here at Kessler, and I had an opportunity to chat with Joe DeLisa, who was some 10 years ago the CEO uh, of Kessler and Joel as a physiatrist was looking through my CV and he says you know you've been pretty productive for a recreational researcher. <laughs> and it's the first time I heard that term and I was I have to say I was mildly offended <laughs> and then I realized that yeah it has been kind of fun that I've largely been um, involved in research not as my primary focus, but because I think that I've encountered interesting questions and I've tried to engage in research to help me solve problems that could assist me in better helping patients and then sharing that experience with others. 
So my talk is really about reducing diagnostic uncertainty. I could have subcaptioned it, uh, you know, machinations of a recreational researcher, <laughs> but I didn't. Instead, I would like to sort of uh, be more inclusive, take some real scientists, uh, and combined with those of us that are more um, casual researchers or clinical researchers, and talk about what our research can mean um, to practitioners, to take the findings that we generate and get them in the hands of people who can then implement them with patients to improve patient care. And so my talk, if I can get my fingers to work right here, find the right buttons, it's gonna have two parts. The first part is really gonna be kind of a general background, um, quick background on evidence-based practice and what researchers, as all of us in this room, can do to facilitate clinicians using the information that we come up with, the scientific findings. The second part, I'm gonna take you on a journey. And this is really a, uh, looking at how, what are the methods of taking data that we generate that's usually come from the study of groups and how you, we're trying to make that applicable to individual patients. So how do you move from group data down to the single individual? And I have to say is that this has been a journey for me that's been going on for almost a decade, actually a little over a decade. So it's gonna have twists and turns and there'll be some rabbit holes. And at the end, I'm actually gonna ask you for some help with some of the problems and, and questions that I currently am trying to face because I wanna wrap this project up before I die or become too demented to be able to do so. So I'm gonna look for you for some input and assistance along the way. So let me first begin with evidence-based practice. Um, when we think of evidence-based medicine, uh, it's really something that's a catchword. And I don't know uh, how much of the details people have become uh, really immersed in, but it's, it's pretty well uh, accepted that it's a combination. Uh, for neuropsychology, it's really at the nexus of taking the clinician's expertise, the patient needs, and because neuropsychology is often a referral service, what are the needs of the referral uh, source as well? And trying to make decisions that are based on clinical research, or at least to use clinical research to help guide and rein in our tendencies simply to rely on what we think is our best judgment. We really should try to make it based on science, evidence. And so when we look at it from the clinician's perspective, the purpose of any evaluation is to reduce uncertainty about a patient's diagnosis, management, or care. We don't get referrals when it's a slam dunk. If the physician knows that a patient has Alzheimer's disease, they're not gonna send them to me to evaluate. Why do they need me? Who's gonna pay for it unless it's needed, unless it helps answer or reduce uncertainty or increase certainty? You can look at it either way. But evidence-based uh, practice really provides a framework for doing this in an empirical and systematic fashion that incorporates published clinical research that you've considered, you, you've actually evaluated how solid the research is. We don't want you to sort of use the clinician to be using anything that appears in print, but quality research to inform their decisions about individuals. So we put this in a bigger context as we have to go back a little time, and that's what old folks like me do. We think, 
we, we reminisce. I don't know how many people in this room remember the golden age of medicine where you did a service and you submitted a bill and the insurance company paid it. No questions asked. The golden age. Around the 80s uh, and with the passage of the Social Security Act, more and more people were eligible to receive services and people were really concerned that costs were skyrocketing and administrators started to impose things like DRGs, diagnostic related groups, for those of you that may have heard of that in the past, or managed care or HMOs, where on an administrative basis, you are being told what would be reimbursed and what wouldn't be. Clinicians sort of fought back a little bit, and this is really where evidence-based medicine really came into play is that they argued that rather than doing this administratively, that healthcare really should be based on outcomes. We should look to see what really works. Rather than paying for a test just because you could do the test, the test had to be warranted. It had to show to be, be shown to be beneficial. So in this age of the outcomes movement, there was a movement away from just simply doing evaluations for, to describe how the patient was, to looking at the outcome, that every patient evaluation was a clinical outcome, and that every test score, and as a neuropsychologist we give tests, that those test scores are part of the outcome, and that those scores should be interpreted within the context of clinical evidence. It really should be done <clears throat> in a scientific basis. So evidence-based practice, I'm gonna tell you a little bit of what I think it is, and then how it's performed. So what is evidence-based practice? This is a very long definition. It's something that has evolved for me since uh, some publications that I had in the, the uh, 2009, 2010. But evidence-based practice uh, is a value-driven pattern of practice that integrates best, meaning the best quality research you can find, that's often derived on the study of populations to inform decisions about individuals. And then it goes on to say in the context of the provider's expertise, individual patient values with the goal of maximizing clinical outcomes and quality of life for the patient in a cost-effective manner while addressing the concerns of the providers and referral sources. Believe me, I think that's the longest, I think, grammatically correct sentence. It's you know very compound complex. Uh, my eighth grade grammar teacher would be proud of me. Um, but really, when you break it down, there's seven components to this. And the three that really have to do with the evidence-based practice are the first three. It's value-driven. It integrates research, clinical research, derived from the study of groups to inform decisions about individuals. And most of this is relatively objective. Value is a little bit iffy by what you mean by value. And again, this is something that old folks do. You look back at things that you learned when you were young and you realize how important they were in framing your current thoughts. So this is something uh, that Lou Costa published. It was part of his presidential address to uh, Division 40 back in 82. It says that patients deserve decisions and recommendations that are founded increasingly on empirical validation. This is 83. And that the in instruments, the tests, chosen to produce data to resolve these questions in a valid fashion 
should be selected on the basis of their power to reduce uncertainty with respect to those questions. And this, for me, is what value is about. Value in what I do as a clinician and how I apply the research findings is really how much of an impact and value do I add to patient care? So you can think of it as reducing uncertainty or increasing certainty. Really complementary ideas. So that's the what. So what is the how? Um, Evidence-based medicine was a term coined really in a publication in JAMA in, in 1992. It was really the work of David Sackett and Gordon Guyette. But there was a working group on evidence-based practice. And they talked about it as being a new paradigm, a change that shifts from just kind of unqualified, uh, unsystematic uh, beliefs and practices to really move toward a more scientific basis. And he said that there's going to be new skills, so when you're teaching new medical residents or graduate students, that the graduate students and, and residents needed to learn some new skills. And they talked about it in terms of the five A's. Ask appropriate questions, acquire relevant data, appraise the research that you find, critically evaluate it, and then apply it. And at the end, assess how well you did. And if it did well, great. If not, you change what you do. So it all starts really with asking appropriate questions and answerable questions. And this really, the, the question shapes what the clinician does or, or evidence-based practice does. And it really follows a lot what we do in science. We have an idea and a question, and then we design methods to try to answer that. But it reminds me of, of going back, I think it was Meister Eckhart, who was a, a German philosopher and theologian in the 14th century that talked about wise men don't seek to have all the answers. They rather try to understand the questions, to understand the questions. And so that's where we start. What is the question? And this is what we as researchers can do. It's when we're writing papers, is to make it clear to the reader what is the type of question that we're trying to answer? What it is, because it tells us then where to look and what to expect. So if we're doing a diagnostic study, we're going to look for signs and symptoms of tests. And then in terms of doing a, a search of what's relevant, what are the diagnostic validation studies that are related to that? So it could be something that we do in that like final paragraph before you get to the methods section where you say, okay, here's our hypothesis. Well, we can be very clear about what kind of a study it is that we're going to do because that's going to help the reader and clinician to focus in how they're going to read the paper that we uh, present. So you start with a well-built question. And, and when you're teaching this to residents, we teach them to follow the PICO model, which is patient intervention comparison. It's really how you frame the question. You usually have a background question and then a foreground question. Uh, I'm interested in Alzheimer's disease versus frontal temporal dementia. And I want to see whether there are differences in their pattern of phonemic and semantic fluency. So we can phrase this in a way, frontal temporal dementia, patterns of uh, phonemic and semantic fluency compared to Alzheimer's disease are different in terms of, say, sensitivity or specificity. If you look at it, these are kind of the things that you might have for your search terms 
if you're doing a query of Medline or um, some other, oops. Oh, well this should be interesting. Well, let's see, can I? All right, I did. I did a little executive control there, a little motor control. Um, but anyway, again, as we as researchers, we can be thinking about this because when we title our papers, we don't want to say reducing diagnostic um, uncertainty machinations of a recreational researcher because who knows what's going to come up in the search with, you know, machinations and recreational. Who knows if that's what the search engine is going to latch onto, what might come up. Um, but again, I think that the idea that I want to get across is that now, it's not wanting to, it's froze. The, uh, but the idea is you come up, uh, you want to be thinking about this as we're generating our, um, what we're doing. If not, I can just say next slide, next transition. All right. Ah, there we go. So, informatic skill. So, what do you do when you got a question? Well, if you're old school, you can pick up a phone and say, hey, Dr. DeLuca, can you tell me about fatigue and MS? Do you know anything about that? Where should I go? He might, as a wise man, he say, might say, well, I don't have all the answers, but here's where you might go to find it. Again, kind of directing. Or you could pick up a book on your shelf or, you know, really old school, you can go to a library if you remember what those are and they have the books on the shelves now. Or more realistically, you're really going to be going to the internet. And again, you have to think back about evidence-based medicine. Not only did you have this financial and political thing going on, but the internet, I think it was 94 or 96 that Medline became available. And personal computers were now the rage. You could actually have a computer in your office. You didn't have to go to a university and access information on Mainline. But tell the truth here, who hasn't just had a quick question and, and Googled it or used Bing? Um, certainly when we were looking at uh, trying to find out the value of things that were stolen, we've used Google a lot because we didn't know. Um, but if you're lucky, you might come up with uh, Wikipedia that might have some useful references. Or more likely, you're going to, uh, as a practitioner, you're going to go to various databases. And we do this as researchers as well, as when we do uh, a literature search, we can go through and access a variety of databases that will help guide us in acquiring A, the second A, acquiring information that's useful. And if you do PubMed, um, you know about clinical queries where you can actually hone in and do advanced searches depending on the category of researches. Uh, but I would also mention, all right, it's not wanting to cooperate. Well, I'm going to give up on trying to point. I'm, I'm just going to, it's okay. Again, old school. All right. You can, you can do more advanced clinical searches, and again, the search terms will help you. 
But think about it as a researcher. If you want your research to be noticed and hopefully used, you're going to be thinking about how it's going to be searched for. And so both the title but also the MeSH terms that you include are going to help people find your paper and make it um, potentially something that they're going to rely on to guide their practice. This is a search uh, that I did uh, because I was interested in both uh, semantic and uh, phonemic fluency, Alzheimer's and frontal dementia. Uh, under clinical queries, diagnostic uh, category, it gave me 33 results, one of which it flagged. This is a, a paper by Katya Raskowski, who's now at uh, University of Pennsylvania. Um, and it said, by the title alone, it seemed to match your search. And indeed, it was a great paper. And I'm going to come back to it uh, a couple times in the course of this uh, presentation. But again, things that we can do as researchers in being able to get our work noticed. The second part is being aware that it needs to be critically reviewed and appraised, knowing what's good or what's bad. Because as a clinician, you know, if you've got garbage going into your head, that's what's going to come out. And that's perhaps what your clinical care might be affected by. So knowing what's good. In evidence-based practice, they talk about the evidence pyramid, levels of evidence. And some are more stringent and have more power than others. At the bottom, we have things like uh, book chapters or this talk, you know, uh, expert opinion. But really, you know, looking at systematic reviews, meta-analysis, you know, certainly making use in neuropsychology of a journal neuropsychology review, which is primarily meta-analyses and reviews, a great source. But in most cases, our work is going to fall into one of these three categories. The type of research we do, case-controlled studies, cohort studies, or randomized cohort studies. And we should know what those are. Because again, we can use that to describe our um, our research uh, in the title so that, again, people can begin to get an idea of what, whether it fits their bill of what they're looking for. In a case control study, um, this might be comparing patients with relapsing and remitting MS versus secondary progressive MS and seeing if they differ on measures of processing speed. The health outcome has already occurred. You've gotten a sample of people in those two groups, and you're looking to see if they, they're different. And that's different than, say, a cohort study. Say you have a group of uh, patients with mild cognitive impairment, or, as I learned last night, uh, multiple sclerosis, where there is a great deal of interest in, in cognitive reserve affecting subsequent outcome. So you could have a group, say, two groups of patients with, say, MS, and you give them a test like the NEO, a personality test, and look at their openness scores. At least in the Alzheimer's literature, openness to experience has been linked with cognitive reserve. So you could have a group that's high and low, and you follow these people over time to see what the differences might be in terms of incident, demen in Alzheimer's, incident dementia, or cognitive decline. But again, in our title, we can say, this is, a, this is a diagnostic case controlled study of. And right there in the search room, you're giving people a heads up how to find your papers. But then we also have to write papers in a way that uh, are solid. Um, I like this because it really, 
I know it probably describes some of my research in the past, but it's certainly when I review papers now for a variety of journals, it's become a big thing about the reporting. The method section is now critical. Because um, readers need to know what you really wanted to do and intended to do. And there are now reporting guidelines, and some of you may know that some journals now both give these guidelines to their reviewers, but also alert people who are submitting papers that they should use some of these standards, that they're checklists that are out there. Uh, Prisma is another one. There's a variety of standards on what should be included um, to really make an up or down uh, decision. If I'm a reader, I have to understand what's going on. And I know that I spend, I make most of my comments are about the methods and procedures, and particularly, who are the subjects? Subject recruitment. Um, I'm going to quickly go through. This is a study that we did. Two groups of patients, uh, 45 patients in each group. One had uh, PET scans that were prototypic of uh, metabolic deficits that were, are associated with Alzheimer's disease. Not diagnosed, but associated with Alzheimer's disease and frontal temporal dementia. And we did basically, we tried to replicate uh, Katya Raskowski's paper. Instead of autopsy confirmed cases, we had in vivo measures of what we thought were AD and FTD. And we found very nice results, very similar to hers, uh, very nice ROC curves. But we have to be honest that those 90 patients just didn't walk in through the door. They were not consecutive referrals. They were drawn from a much larger sample of patients because not everybody in our clinic had PET scans, not everybody got neuropsych, not everybody met our, our uh, inclusion criteria. So when we got down to the final 90 cases, 45 each, it was a rather reified group. It's not representative of the general sample. And including a flowchart like this is very helpful. And I'm sure some of you are already doing this. It's very helpful for the reader to quickly understand how you got and recruited your patients. So to recap, um, how am I doing on time here? Getting late. Um, ask the question. You've acquired the relevant research. You've critically appraised it. And now, now comes a little bit late. Um, but how to apply this? And this is where it gets interesting, and, and this is where the rubber meets the road. So how do we move? And I said one of the defining features was we use data based on group studies to inform specific individual decisions. And so there's a process. And to, for me, I guess I realized uh, some time ago, as I said, I started this inquiry almost a decade ago, but the basic question that a clinician has is, if my patient were part of your study, which group are they most likely to be in? All I have is their test score. How do I decide which group they're likely to be in? Now, we can look at data in one of two ways. We can look at it in terms of how much or how many. How much is kind of the classic approach. We take a group with a condition of interest and a reference or comparison group. We say, are they different? And if the means are statistically different, statistic, the difference is statistically reliable. Notice I'm, I'm trying to avoid using significant because clinical significance and statistical difference mean very different things. 
Um, but you can also look at it in terms of how many. And if I have a particular score, I can say that score can separate the two populations. How many people, say if this was a group of Alzheimer's patients, see if I can do this with, uh, or is my pointer back? Uh, poor motor control, um, age. Um, the condition of interest, say, is Alzheimer's disease. You can use point a, score A as a cutoff. Say this is a memory test. How many people fall below score A? How many people in the normal group fall above it? So below it, you have true positives or sensitivity. You'll miss some cases. Uh, they'll score over here. And if you're normal, how many people score above that? That gives us our specificity or our true negatives. But again, we'll miss some. And we often will see, occasionally at least in papers, they talk about uh, cutoff scores and how well it classifies people. The issue is, is that you could have score B. It's actually even a little bit lower. Not as many Alzheimer's patients actually score below that, but almost no normals do. This is something that David Sackett calls a spin, a test or a score that has high specificity such that a positive result uh, includes the patient. is a positive uh, diagnosis. You can be pretty confident. But you could also have a score that's higher. And so you lose some specificity here. You have some more normals falling below that score. But almost none of the Alzheimer's patients are going to score that high. This is a snout a test with high sensitivity such that a negative result rules the case out. So depending on what score you have uh, and how you, what kind of a test you want it to be, you can choose different cutoff scores. I like this slide for two reasons. It's important. Sensitivity and specificity are not properties of a test. It's how the test operates, and hence, test operating characteristics up here. How the test operates between these two samples, in these two samples. The second point is, is that there's no one set of sensitivity and specificity. Every score, potential score, will be associated with a different sensitivity and specificity. You see that in ROC curves when you plot sensitivity versus specificity. But as a clinician, this is wonderful news because my patient might not score A or B or C. They may have score Y. And I want to know how sensitive and specific is score Y, because that's what my patient generates. Now, again, bear with me a little bit here. Oops. Again, you can put this into you know, a little two-by-two two table, true positives, true negatives. That's uh, your sensitivity, specificity. And, you know, I wish papers had more uh, inclusion of cutoff scores. So think about it when you're reporting your results to not only look at the typical uh, parametric uh, uh, group comparisons, but also to provide some information about base rates and how the test is operating. Because not only can we get sensitivity and specificity, but this is, as a clinician, this is what's really relevant. What is the likelihood of a given score, the score that my patient generates, relative to your study or comparison of the two groups? And how much does it change your pre 
the pre-probability of that condition of interest after the test is given. And this really gets at the essence of Bayes' theorem. What we know after giving a test is equal to what we knew before times some modifier. And how that test then, the test results, shift our prior distribution of scores to post-distribution. And this is where the value comes in. How much do we shift? How much does the test really give us in making a diagnosis? So does testing matter? This is a Fagan uh, nomogram. And if you have a, a score that has a, a, a condition of inference, uh, a prevalent, uh, condition of interest with a prevalence of 20% and you have a likelihood ratio, something you can calculate. So you can actually take value and give it a numerical value. How much does it shift your pre-test uh, pre probability to post-test probability? So from 20% to about 70%, or if it's a, a negative likelihood ratio, you can actually reduce the likelihood that your patient has that condition based on looking at what the base rates are. Now, I wish I could say that there are lots of papers that give base rate information. And I would implore you, as you're doing your research, to consider including or looking in addition, not in, as a substitute, but in addition to your uh, data, to give some information about cutoffs. Now, this is the study I was mentioning before by uh, Dr. Broskowski. Uh, looking at patterns of phonemic and semantic fluency. Nice autopsy confirmed data, it's about the gold standard. Um, but the, the samples were closely matched. These are the results. The interesting thing is that the pattern of findings, Alzheimer's patients did much worse, statistically worse, on semantic fluency, whereas the opposite pattern was true for FTD. And she came up with this little ratio but in her paper, this is one of the few papers out there, there are others certainly, that not only did she do the group comparison, small sample, p-value of only 0.05, but a very large effect size. So it was quite significant. But she also then went on to look at an optimal score. She tells us in the paper what the score is. So if you had about 52% of this composite, uh, if you were less than that, you're likely to be AD, and if you were more than that, equal or more, it was FTD. And she then tells us how many cases she correctly classified. Well, that's really useful because we can stick those four numbers, correct, incorrect classification in each of the two groups into a little diagnostic calculator and come up with likelihood ratio and a variety of other um, uh, test operating characteristics. And this is where my journey began, is I wanted to have on my desktop a little Excel calculator, taking the little formulas of how you take those four numbers and you compute a variety of, of statistics um, that I think are relevant to um, individuals. And, and you can flip this around and say, what's the likelihood of FTD? And you just you know, turn over a little bit what the uh, condition of interest is and you can compute the same thing in the same statistics. And again, the point that is, or one that's most interesting to me as a clinician to apply her results are really this likelihood ratio. So if I know at least what score A is, the optimal score to separate the groups, 
if my patient falls either above or below that particular score, they're four times more likely, uh, if they're falling above it, to have FTD. That the initial uh, base rate was a third, and it's now doubled. The power of the test has helped me to double my certainty, or to reduce my uncertainty. And so I can apply this information. Not all papers do this, and I wish they would. The, the issue, though, for me as a clinician is, like, what about my patient? My patient has a score of 65, not 0.524. Can I be a little bit more um, uh, definitive? And I don't know, uh, and I want to be sensitive to the time. We're good. Okay, I'm going to just ramble on. Uh, haven't seen anybody fall out of their seat yet, so we're doing okay. Two challenges. One is investigators don't always provide information about base rates and cutoff scores, but we could. A small paragraph, just as she did. Um, it would be wonderful uh, if you do provide cutoffs that you can use multiple cutoffs. Maybe you choose cutoffs that are not optimal, but you shift it, well, what about capturing the lower 25, you know, the point? 5%, 15%, 20%, you can look at multiple likelihood ratios. Great benefit to the end user, the consumer, the clinician that's trying to apply your test results to their patient. Well, I, I sort of put my little calculator aside and said, nah, I can do better than that. Um, let me see if I can come up with something that will allow me to make predictions about specific individuals. Simple psychometrics. If anybody's done clinical work, you know that in a lot of test manuals they provide this. This is on a, a continuum or a metric like a, a Wechsler score where the average score is 100, standard deviation of 15. My patient gets a 77. Well, 77 is below 100. In fact, it's below by 1.533 standard deviations. But that's kind of neat because we know from psychometrics that we take that score, we can then get the percentile score. You see that with school psychologists giving tests and saying, well, your child you know, got a score of you know, 115, and that means that they're at the 68th percentile of you know, their peers. Um, really kind of describing where the person is. But once we know what the percentiles are, yeah, yeah, it's kind of, I'm, I'm simplistic, I'm kind of a, a simplistic data junkie. Well, if you know the percentiles, and if you know what the sample size is, you can actually estimate how many people were, how many people in that sample were above and below. So in the Wechsler Memory 4, it was given to 500 older adults, 55 to 85, and so a score of 77 in the normative sample would have meant that 469 people, estimated, would be above that score. And 31 would be, would be below. And that means that I can go to my little table and fill it in and say a score of 77 in the normal population has X specificity. What I don't know is, you know, in a patient population, the sensitivity. But again, part of this is kind of the evolution of the of the uh, little calculator. Uh, we can say this is the normal or reference group. Uh, here's the percentages. They did have a small sample of 48 patients with Alzheimer's disease that they use as a, an example. You can see big group difference. But again, my patient didn't have a score of 63. 
it was 77. So how likely did my patient have Alzheimer's disease? And again, you just plug in the mean standard deviation of that group, the score, which is the same. We'll see that actually their score of 77 is above average for Alzheimer's patients. But we get the percentiles. We get the uh, estimated people above and below. And so now I can say, if my patient were part of this sample and had a score of 77, how likely, or how likely would they be in the group uh, one versus the other? And so this is the likelihood ratio. And so we can fill in the table, again estimated here, and compute it. Again, the little calculator does this for you. You plug in the sample size and it does all this. And it gives you what the prevalence is, sensitivity and specificity of the score of 77 in those two samples, as well as the likelihood ratio. So a patient, my patient with 77, a score of 77, is 12 times more likely to have been a member of the Alzheimer's group in this sample. So it, it gives me something that I can report. It helps me reduce, you know, kind of saying, well, my patient is somewhere between 163, you know, which are they? Well, I can say with much greater certainty, because I can go down here, say the initial prevalence is about 9%, and now it's ninefold higher. It's about 54%, the post-test probability. This is really useful. This is kind of information that I thought, wow, this is really something that people could use. They could go to a study, and then if a study, researchers like us report the mean standard, standard deviation and sample size of our two groups, we can compute all these nifty things. Now, this is a test to see if you've been awake. Is there a rub here? Did anybody notice on some of the previous slides a caution? that there was a caveat. Caveat is that all of this is based on a normal distribution, that things actually are nice and symmetric. And you know, test companies like PAR and, and Pearson, you know, when they standardize tests, you got the, they, they make it normal one way or another. They make it normal. But your patient groups don't necessarily follow that. Um, and if you're doing two clinical groups, you don't always know this. So you have to be really cautious because you can make some big mistakes. And this is kind of the recent, more recent rabbit hole I've been going down and problem as a clinical researcher I've been trying to solve. We know that not all samples are symmetric, that they tend to be skewed positive or negatively. And the problem with skew is up here, the mean, median, and mode measures of central tendency are the same number. They all represent, can be defined by the same score. When they get skewed, there you can see there's a greater distance from the median, which is the point that separates the lower half from the upper half. The median is just the 50th percentile. And that can be very different from the mean. And so these little calculators would not work unless what, what do you think as clinician or researchers you can do to alert me from going down that wrong road? You report means standard deviations and sample size. What else could you report? I ask reviewers to do, or as a reviewer, I ask authors to do this increasingly in my reviews if it's not there. Interquartile range, you can also ask them, what is the skew? 
tell me, is it, is it skewed? And you get the coefficient of skewness. Um, I kind of jumped ahead a little bit here. So you have skew. All right. And it can be a little or a lot. It can be a problem or not. Um, and actually, uh, Carl Pearson, <laughs> he thought of everything. Um, if you report skew and you know the mean and standard deviation, you can get the, uh, the median. You can determine where the you know, 50th percentile is, regardless of how skewed a sample is. You know, I was really hoping, and I asked the people in our statistics department, I asked some uh, people like Scott Millis, one of your formal, uh, former uh, colleagues here, John uh, Crawford in Scotland, who I, I think does marvelous work, and basically kind of saying, yeah, I don't think you can work backwards from skew to recreate the distribution. I'm only interested in what's the cumulative frequency. You know, can I say at what score, how many people above and below? Uh, I can get at the 50th percentile, but that's not as satisfying as I would like. But you could certainly, as researchers, report it. And you know, for those of you that have done this before, you say, well, variable x was skewed, and so we still want to do parametric statistics. So what do you do? Pardon? A, a transformation, log transformation, in you know, kind of square root transformation. There's lots of transformations to normalize the distribution of scores to kind of make it fit the model. Um, it would be nice, again, certainly researchers can report the skew. They could just, as you were saying, the quartiles, just report where, what is the score at each quartile. So we know now though that, well, 25% below, 75% above, you got the 50th, and you could report those and believe me, I, I would love to see people have a little table where you present multiple um, base rates for different scores because then we can, uh, as clinicians, go back and calculate things like likelihood ratio. But if you do a transformation, here's the question. And, and unfortunately, I had some simulations I was working on and uh, they're in the wind now. As I came home from Peru, they're gone. Um, I think, I think that if you have the transformation formula and you report what the normalized mean and standard deviation is, you should be able to take a person's raw score, transform it, to do, and then be able to do just as we did with z-scores because it's now a normal distribution and figure out where it is a lot more complex, and now we're becoming more theoretical uh, psychometry here, but trying to be relevant. And I'm taking you down um, really, as I said, it's been a personal journey, and every time I think I'm ready to write this up and you know, put the calculator on as a, uh, an appendix, online uh, appendix on a journal site, I come up with another problem. And that's an essence of science. It leads you from one question to the next to the next. This has been my personal journey in questions. So if any of you have suggestions, comments, or can offer help, please do so. If anyone knows how to program a nomogram in Excel, please let me know. Show me the right way, because I think it would be kind of a cute addition to the calculator I have now. Um, but really, I'm down to this issue of skewness and what we 
as researchers can do to deal with it, to make it evident to clinicians, and how maybe the clinicians can then somehow solve it to apply your findings in their patient care. So with that, I'm gonna leave you blissfully uh, unknowing that our house was getting robbed. We were uh, on Mount Vinacuna at about 17,000 feet overlooking the Red Valley and the uh, Peruvian <coughs> Andes. And um, it does help open up one's mind and, and kind of think a little bit. So let me stop. I, I think I've run over a bit here, quite a bit. <laughs> For more information about Kessler Foundation, go to KesslerFoundation.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts.